Welcome to the Next Level Income Show, where it's our goal to take your income, your investments, and your life to the next level. I'm your host, Chris Larson. You can get a copy of my book for free at nextlevelincome.com. Just click on the book link. On today's show, we have Kevin Bupp. Kevin is a Florida-based real estate investor, top iTunes podcast host, and serial entrepreneur with over 200 million of real estate transactions under his belt. His extensive investment experience spans the gamut of multifamily, office, retail, raw land, parking lots, and his favorite and by far the most profitable, mobile home parks. You're not going to want to miss this show today as Kevin shares how he built a $30 million empire, lost it all in the Great Recession, and then has rebuilt what he has today. He also shares what has been his really core focus that allowed him to pull through that time and also what his inspiration was to have him start his 72-hour to Key West annual bike ride that helps feed thousands of families a year. You're not going to want to miss this episode. So after this quick message, stay tuned for my interview today with Kevin Bupp. Today's show is sponsored by MFIN Summit. That's the Multifamily Investor Nation Summit coming up on January 21st through the 23rd. Do you want to learn how to buy an apartment building? If owning and managing or being an investor is better for you, perhaps you just want to learn more about the asset class in general. The MFIN Summit is a three-day information-packed event for multifamily investors with over 1,000 attendees and over 50 speakers, including yours truly. You'll hear from experts about finding deals, raising capital, underwriting strategies, selecting markets, and so much more. You can hear me as well as dozens of other speakers during the event. Go to MFINSummit.com to grab your ticket. That's MFINSummit.com to grab your ticket and use promo code NEXTLEVEL, all caps, no spaces, NEXTLEVEL to get $100 off. Whether you are new to multifamily investing or a seasoned investor, you do not want to miss this event. Join me at the Multifamily Investor Nation Summit in January. Kevin, welcome to the show. Chris, thanks for having me, man. Excited to be here. Yeah, likewise. Man, it seems like a whole eternity ago when we last saw each other in February before COVID hit out in Colorado, but I'm getting fired up. I'm looking at taking trips out west to do some skiing here. Yeah, yeah, me too. I know as, as we were talking about February, we were out there, went skiing after the best ever conference and then uh, did a trip to Park City and literally like two days we got back from Park City, everything shut down and we've been stuck ever since, but I'm looking forward to, to getting back out there. I already got, I literally have three trips planned out West uh, or here over the next couple of months. So I'm excited to get back on the skis. Well, actually snowboard, not skis. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. I told my boys, my boys have been skiing. I picked up skiing again with them, but I told them once they can ski the whole mountain and I figured it'd take a few years, then we'd start snowboarding and son yeah. of a gun out there at uh, Keystone, my son, he did the whole mountain with me. I was like, well, I guess that's it. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. But, um, so Kevin, you know, we were talking before the show. I feel like I've known you for years because I've listened to your podcast in the past, you know, all your work with mobile home parks. I really admire the charities that you support. And you know, I think we, we share some similar passions in not only cycling, but also bourbon. So for those in the audience that don't know about your story, perhaps you could share more with us. Yeah, yeah, sure thing. And thanks, Chris, for having me here. I'll try to keep it somewhat condensed, but you know, I've been investing in real estate. I'm 41 now. I've been investing in real estate since I was 20. I got into real estate when I was 19, kind of studied underneath uh, a gentleman who became my mentor. It was a very accidental situation. I guess right place, right time, right? Because at that point in my life, Chris, I was attending bar, going to school, local community college. And you know, I had ambition. I'd always kind of hustled at a younger age. I'd paper route, I would go mow lawns, I'd shovel, shovel snow. I would when I was like 14, I learned how to install car stereos, my brother's cars and build speaker boxes, like all these things. I always like to make my own way and, and be able to buy my own things. 
But as I got a little older and graduated high school, started going to school, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I knew I didn't want to go away to school and, and waste my parents' money. I knew that if I went away, it would have been $25,000 a year. And I sure my parents weren't rich at all. We were very middle of the road, blue collar. And so I, I did the responsible thing and stuck around. However, they know what my future path was going to look like. And then just kind of by accident, you know, I started dating a girl and this girl, uh, her mother had recently gone through a divorce and started dating a guy by the name of David, David, local real estate investor. And so just being over at their house, you know, on a regular basis, became friends with David and just got to learn more about his business, what he did. He lived a very different life than I was used to growing up. You know, he drove a really nice car, always dressed really nice and seemed to have a lot of flexibility in his, in his day. You know, like I would come see him over at the house in like odd parts of the week, like Wednesday afternoon, like 1 PM when, you know, my parents were at work, right? Like they worked at nine to five. And so it was really odd for me to see him around. He wasn't unemployed. He was, he actually had money, but he got to kind of choose his, his days, right? And how he spent them. And so that was very intriguing to me. And uh, long story short, Dave and I, you know, we struck a friendship, just uh, again, got to learn a little bit more about what he did. I didn't really comprehend it or understand it. I just, I mean, I understood the basics from a high level, but didn't really know the, the micro level details of how he did what he did and how he accomplished all that he had. And so a few short months after our, our friendship, you know, I think David, I, I always ask him questions. I was always interested, always just trying to like peel back layers. I he obviously noticed that and he invited me to a three-day workshop or a boot camp down in Philadelphia. Uh, Ron Legrand. Ron Legrand's still around today. Oh, yeah. 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 Ron Legrand's still around today. But uh, I went down to this boot camp. David invited me. He paid a couple thousand dollars for it. Uh, his business partner couldn't attend. And so he invited me to go. And I had no idea what it was, what, it, what I was going to learn. But I said, yes. I didn't even hesitate. I said, yes. And did with him. And what I realized during those three days together is that number one, there was a lot of people there that were making, to me, was a lot of freaking money. And just a couple hundred thousand dollars a year was a lot of freaking money to me. Like my parents both made somewhere between probably $25,000 a year, my dad maybe $60,000 a year. So again, very blue cut of the road. Neither of them ever broke that six-figure annual income. And so this was a whole different world to me. And what I realized, number making a lot of money. Number two, a lot of the folks I met over those three days didn't seem to be all that much smarter than me. I mean, they knew a lot more about real estate because they had been doing it. Uh, but generally speaking, they didn't seem to possess any additional skill sets that I couldn't ultimately learn a little bit of help from David and guidance. And so I left that three-day boot camp excited, overwhelmed, you know, just uh, seeing dollar signs and really more so feeling like it was this was it. Like this was something I could wrap my arms around. Like nothing had excited me up to that point in my life as far as like future dreams, future goals, career. Nothing else had really excited me, and I surely wasn't all that excited to go to school. It just I've never been an overly studious person. At least back then I wasn't. Now I'm much more am. But um, it just uh, going to college like wasted time for me. And so anyway, I continued going to classes. I attended bar part time. But what I did is I went back to David a couple of weeks after we got back from this boot camp. Essentially, I knew that if I didn't have help, that I would lose this energetic feeling. Like it, it would leave me and then I would be back at the beginning stages again, just you know, understanding this real estate thing, but not really knowing what the next steps were. And so I, I continued with that enthusiasm. I went to David and David, he was about 25 years older than I. And uh, I went to him with a plan. Basically, I wanted to be around him more. I wanted to be in his business during the day, but how could I help him? How could I kind of give value to him? So that in turn, he would teach me what he knew and I could be around him more and get to learn his business. And again, being that he was a little older than I, he wasn't as good with technology. Like He wasn't as good with even setting up an email or creating a PowerPoint presentation. He just, it wasn't his thing. He, he was a paper guy. And so I offered to help him learn his business. And I did find that that void 
existed in the technology side. And so I basically offered to be his admin assistant, be whatever he needed from me. And so I did a little bit of everything. I mean, from, you know, picking up signed leases or delivering sign, you know, delivering leases and picking up signed leases from, from tenants, doing showings for him on his properties. He was kind of a one man band. He kind of uh, oversaw everything. I would go on meetings with him with contractors and I was just around him as much as possible. And so about a year thereafter, you know, I, I learned a ton, you know, it was just engulfed in it on a daily basis. I learned a lot and I felt that it was time. I had saved up bartending money and uh, it was time to buy my own property, kind of that leap of faith. And that was scary as hell to me because I had never bought anything more than maybe like a car or like a dirt bike or something like that in my life. Right. So like yeah. I had never spent tens of dollars on something and I had money saved up, but it was all I had. And it took me quite some time to save it. Uh, but I bought that first single family home when I was 20 years old. It was a completely rundown mess in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, downtown area. PA. Yeah, really, really rough area. Even a rough area today, you know. um, Right off of 83, right? Yep, right off of 83. Just, uh, it was a row home, your typical row home, your three story row home. And I purchased that property, utilized a lot of David's resources to renovate it. You know, he had a lot of those relationships. I had gotten to know them over that year of working together. It allowed me to leverage a lot of those resources that he had already created. You know, my intent originally was to kind of follow David's model. I, I you know, I didn't want to fix what wasn't broken. And David's model was a buy. He was much further along yeah. his business. I didn't understand that right away, but I was like, I'm going to be a buy hold investor as well. I'm going to buy for cash flow, right? However, I used all my money to buy that property, and so that couple hundred dollars a month I received in cash flow once I rented it out, it was going to take me a very long time. I quickly realized to have enough money to buy another property, right? I quickly changed that model to basically. Wholesale, you know, wholesale a couple properties, buy one, keep it. Wholesale a couple properties, buy one, keep it. So that became my model until I had the ability to really focus more on long-term holds. And it took a couple of years to really get there before I had the capital sources. And that's when private came into the equation. And and then we really became a buy and hold investor where we, for the most part, bought with the intent of holding and internal. I love it. Yeah, I I can continue, but I'll let you, I'll let you interject here for a moment. Yeah. Well, I think there's so much about your story that I love, Kevin. First off, you know, both of us came from you know fairly humble beginnings. I grew up uh, just south of Baltimore, not too far from you down there. Um, mm-hmm. You got me beat, though. I was at, I was 21 when I bought my first property. <laughs> but uh, you know, the young investors that I mentor now, we we have this conversation. You know, they look and they're like, "I'm going to build my passive income, and I'm going to make 200 bucks a month off this property." It's like, well, how many do you have to buy to get there? And yeah. shifting from that you know, mentality. So for, for those that aren't listening, wholesaling is essentially, what do you do with a wholesale versus a buy and hold? Oh, you're asking me the question? I mean, with a wholesale. Yeah, so what's, how's a wholesale deal different than, you know, just going to buy in a rental? Yeah. I mean, a wholesale deal is just really tying up the paper and selling the paper, you know, at a below market price uh, to where there's enough room for that next investor to come in and actually do the rehab and make a profit on it. So yeah. that's ultimately a wholesale. And then all for us was we'd buy it and then we'd renovate it, you know, get it and, you know, move in condition. And then again, you know, turn it into a long-term rental. Yeah. I think that's a great strategy. So if you're listening and you're not familiar with this and you're trying to figure out how am I going to get some capital, maybe this is your side gig. That's a great way is to go out meet other investors that are, mm-hmm. that are looking for buying holds and doing that. All right. So you're going along, you're wholesaling deals, you're buying single family, Kevin. Mm-hmm. And this is all in Pennsylvania. When did you make your move to Florida? I moved to Florida uh, in 2002. So I wrapped up school. Okay. You know, I bought a number of properties up in Pennsylvania. You know, Even growing up there, I mean, Pennsylvania is a beautiful place. Don't get me wrong. But I never, ever got used to the cold. And I never got used to the gray winters, You know, when the sun doesn't really ever come out, just kind of oh, yeah. a you know, gloomy day. 
I just, it drove me easy from the time I was young until I was old enough to say, I'm, I'm going to get out of here and go somewhere else where it's sunny. And so I chose to move to Florida. You know, I, I did some, re- I did do some, re- it wasn't just, hey, let's go to the sun and the fun. I did some research as to vibrant markets where, you know, real estate was trending upwards. You know, Harrisburg was a, I wouldn't call it stagnant, but it not a lot of action happened there. It, it's a different place today than what it was, you know, 20 years ago. But back then, I mean, you'd be lucky if your home jaded 2% in any one given yeah. year. I mean, you'd be yeah. doing really well. And so it's just a very linear market, it's just kind of slow moving. And so I wanted to go somewhere where it was a little bit more progressive, where there was opportunity for me to plug in with even real estate investor groups. I mean, I had to drive to Philadelphia or Baltimore to get to the closest yeah. real estate investor meeting, which is those that don't know, it's about two hours to either one of those cities oh, yeah. from where I grew up. So I identified Tampa, Florida as an opportunity. I mean, Tampa was very different 20 years ago than what it is today. It had a lot of uh, growth potential, lots of uh, plans. They were revitalizing downtown Tampa and downtown St. Petersburg. And just uh, there was you know, multiple different you know, Fortune 500 companies and 100 companies moving here and uh, or plans to move here. And so, and it was close to the beach, right? I mean, it was close to the Gulf of Mexico and absolutely a gorgeous area. So I moved down to, to Tampa and uh, immediately plugged myself in. There was literally, I think, like four different weekly real estate groups. Within a 45-minute radius, I could go to multiple different groups, plug into a lot of different networks. And, and I came down and hit the ground running, started buying within a couple of months, started buying property and establishing those relationships. And it, it went a lot faster down here just because it was, I felt like I was the oddity in a small town, Pennsylvania. Like you kind of knew the other handful of real estate investors that, you know, that own more than maybe three properties. But in Tampa, it seemed like there was a lot of people that owned, you know, investment portfolios. And so finding those private money resources and private lenders seemed to happen a lot quicker for me down here. And so I just started buying, I started buying up a frenzy. And so from 2002 to about 2007, I ended up acquiring just over 120 single family, single family homes as rentals. The ones, yeah, ones that I kept like that, yeah. literally, you know, rental units. I had wholesaled a number along the way. But again, my focus when I got down here was really buy and hold. And I wanted to stay true to that model. And I'd have to and sell. that was over how long of a period? There. So 2002 to 2007. So and then I also- five years, you, you bought 120 yeah. properties. And also had a just shy of 500 apartment doors and some miscellaneous, uh, you know, odds and ends commercial real estate. Yeah. But Mostly the model is built around the single family stuff. And in the apartments, just, most of them were joint ventures or partnership Happy that I got involved in. But yeah, did a lot of great things in a short period of time. And then everything was going up. That's all people yeah. knew. I yeah. mean, floor was on fire. And, yeah. uh, and we were very, I was very conservative about my leverage. My average leverage across the board, about 66%. So I wasn't over levered. However, Florida... Florida got into a very precarious situation leading up to the crash in 2008. There was a lot of speculative building going on. I don't know if you remember back in the day uh, when literally a pre-construction home would get flipped five times before it actually oh. was, was fully built. Things like that were going down here left and right. Yeah, and strip, strippers buying two and three houses. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. yeah. It was absolutely crazy. I mean, there was you know, thousands of rooftops being built for populations that weren't even here, that you weren't even necessarily coming. And really, they never came. In fact, people left because there was no jobs here for a period of time. All the construction wow. workers left and things like that. And so we went through a period where over a period of months, we lost a great deal of occupancy. The One of the big things that killed us was we owned a lot of property, older properties, you know, old homes, 30-year-old homes and areas where a lot of these spec homes are being built. And a lot of these builders to kind of cover the cost, not, no one knew how long this was going to go on. Started renting these brand new 322s out for not much more than what we were renting our older home. And so we had a big hit in our occupancy and 
that was really like the nail in the coffin. Like we lost yeah. a good percentage of our occupancy. You know, we weren't renewing leases. We had to give concessions. And then it literally was just a spiral effect. I mean, I'll, I'll leave it at that effect. And we got to the point where we couldn't pay debt service. And it got, you know, we had to make some tough decisions with our property and it gave it back to the banks, worked with a lot of the lenders. I mean, we did as much as we could to kind of work through it, but it was ugly to say the least. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I lost my portfolio within a period of a year and a half, you know, lost during of a $30 million portfolio. And, uh, you know, I took a couple of years hiatus after that. It was damage control for a couple of years. Started a few other businesses outside of real estate just to keep a roof over my head. I mean, my home, my personal home was in foreclosure and, hmm. you know, just uh, really day to day trying to work through, mentally work through and stay tough, trying to see the light at the end of the tunnel, which, you know, when you got a sub 500 credit score and you've got credit knocking, you know, server, process servers knocking on the door all the time, it became very challenging. But I really turned to my health and fitness at that point in my life. I started a few businesses that were directly in line with health and fitness. And I just, I figured that if I could keep my mind really strong and my body you know, really strong and put the right things in it, and I, at least good physically every day when I woke up, that I'd be able to get through this a lot better than that if I turned to the bottle, started drinking like crazy and eat yep. crap and, and feeling crappy. And so that's what I did. I tried to maintain a positive focus and, and knew that things would ultimately turn around at some point in time. And uh, long story short, you know, the fire of real estate, it never left my belly. I just wasn't in a position to really, I wish I would have been to get back in in 2010, 2011, and really buy up a lot of the opportunities that were there. But we ultimately dove back in in 2011, late 2011. At that point, it was really, I look back at to what I would have done differently, right? Given the opportunity. Yeah. And, and what I realized is that I worked my ass off to buy those hundred plus properties, those single family homes, like we're yep. butt off. I wasn't married, didn't have kids. And I had the time to do it and had fun doing it, but I had like 500 apartment units. So, so I almost had five times the amount of apartment units and I didn't really work hard at all to buy those, but I worked incredibly hard to buy the single family properties. Oh, yeah. And the single families are the one that they were the ones that challenged me the most when times got really tough. And so I kind of vowed to turn to multifamily to rebuild things. And that's when I stumbled across mobile home parks. So, so back in 2012. 2012. Yep. Yep. You hit a couple of points there. Again, a lot, a ton of good information there, Kevin. I think a lot of people, you know, whether it's whether it's your health, your family, your career, if you have something that's the cornerstone, and for me, it's always been my health. If you have something that you can constantly focus on, stay in that routine, it's amazing how that can pull you through the tough times. So, you know, if, if I'm listening to you correctly, so you're looking at the single family versus the multifamily. I went through the same transition. I didn't have 120 properties, you know, single family. But I realized that cash flow property will stand these downturns a lot better because I took a huge hit as well, you know, 12 or so years ago. So you started in, in mobile home parks. That's in 2012. Where are you today with your portfolio with the mobile homes? Yeah. So we've got communities in 11 different states. Uh, was there, we've sold out of a few states. We're kind of steering clear now of uh, some of the more uh, blue states just with rent regulations and things like that. And so we've sure. scaled down. We're in 11 different states. We've been teetering around like this 2000 total lot number for like two years now. We buy some and then we ultimately sell some, what have you. But so we've got just right around, I think just 2000 lots throughout 19 communities and uh, just uh, closed on a, another community last week. And it was kind of interesting. We had intended to roll out another fund offering. We typically do funds. And so we intended to roll that out in March. We all know what happened in March. And uh, we put that on delay. And so really, we focused on our existing portfolio for the most part of this year, just making sure that that was in good shape, that we were Take it through, and that, you know, just uh, there are so many unknowns, uncertainties. And going through this before, you can imagine, like, I'm probably much more risk averse than even, like, even my business partner. He hadn't, hadn't gone through a downturn. So I'm 
I was like, let's just put the brakes on. It's okay. There'll always be deals to buy. Let's just put the brakes on. Let's find out how this is all going to play out, right? So about yeah. two and a half, two and a half, three months ago, we started getting a little bit more comfortable that, you know, our portfolio is doing great, you know, still high demand for affordable housing. And inevitably we started buying again, uh, again, just a couple months ago. I think, you know, personally, I think uh, mobile home parks are a phenomenal option for multi- affordable housing, which is really becoming a, a true issue in this country. So what criteria, Kevin? So when you're looking, you know, for us in my book, I talk about, you know, how we target, you know, different MSAs, different metropolitan areas and how we develop our criteria for multifamily. What are your criteria for buying a mobile home park? How do you figure that out? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I will say that the criteria, it's a little bit more expanded than that of a typical multifamily investor. And the reason being, there's just not the sheer number of mobile home parks that, yeah. like there is a multifamily. So, so I don't know the, the accurate number, but this number gets tossed around about 50,000 mobile home parks in the US. Of that 50,000, okay. there's really probably only about 25,000 that are you know fifty spaces or larger, right? And so okay. it's a fairly small number in comparison to you know to that of multifamily. And so uh, we've got to be a little bit more expansive, you know. So that's why we're in eleven states, uh, you know. And uh, for us, it's not just a matter of focusing one or two or three markets. Um, we basically we will go to where the deals are, so long as they're in the northeast, southeast, or the Midwest. Uh, we won't go out on the West Coast. A lot of our emphasis is on the the southeast, you know, the Sun Belt states. I mean, that's where the migration's heading. Outside of that, you know, our criteria has kind of evolved the years. You know, the smallest park that we ever bought was 34 lots. We actually still own that one today up in Atlanta. Uh, but nowadays, you know, really 100 spaces larger, we might consider smaller, you know, if we own something nearby, if we can get some scales of economy there. But really, the, the minimum that we're looking for is about 100 spaces. And we want to know that there's huge demand for affordable housing, you know, and you think that it's most folks would say that there's a demand for affordable housing nationwide, there are select markets that housing is pretty affordable. So I always give a hard time to Flint, Michigan, but you can go and, go on and look at the demographics from Flint, Michigan. The median homes is like $28,000. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a pretty rough market there. Unemployment rates really high. So we want to make sure that there's a demand for affordable housing. I want to know that our park's in a really good school district. And I want to know that jobs are coming to the area that aren't leaving the area, you know, and very basic high level criteria. Outside of that, 100,000 population, which is a fairly small MSA. Your mobile yeah. home parks, uh, we're okay with secondary, even tertiary markets. Uh, some of our best performing communities are in, in tertiary markets. Again, so long as there's a demand for affordable housing and there's still a diverse employment base there and jobs are either staying or coming, not going away. Yes. What's your average rent across your portfolio? And maybe be, I know know it's market specific, but what do you typically see in? Yeah. So I'll go from like the low end to the high end. So I think at at present on the low end, uh, we've got some communities in the Gulf Coast region up in the Panhandle and then over the Mississippi. They're in the 250 range. And then on the high end of our scale uh, in our portfolio, we've got some some parks up in uh, New York. In New York and Maryland, both where the rents are, you know, over $500 a month. So yeah, average some there yeah. in like the mid to high 300 range. Your typical mobile home, what are people paying for their monthly payment for something like that? If they own the home, you mean yeah. uh, in total? Yeah, yeah. So again, it's obviously market specific, but I think on average, if you lump together a house payment with a lot rent, probably on, a, on like a used home, something that's maybe 15, 20 years old. Somewhere between six ninety five to you know eight hundred dollars a month for a three bedroom two bath and brand new home, which we do, we bring in brand new homes. Their total monthly payment between lot rent and the house payment could be somewhere in the range of uh, eight hundred to thousand dollars, and sometimes potentially more in some of the higher expense markets. Yeah, so you're overlapping significantly there with some of that you know C plus or C grade mm-hmm. apartment classes that are out there and doing that. 
Yeah, my uncle lives in Colorado and we drive through and I see these mobile home communities. I'm like, man, these things are fantastic. Like it's impressive how high end some of these communities have gotten now. And we've got the kind of broad spectrum. We've got some, you know, yeah. C-class communities, just hard work and blue collar communities. And we've got yeah. some really high end where literally we've got some of the communities in New York that we have. The mobile homes sell for $120,000, $130,000. And I'm talking like used mobile That's homes. That's more than the first and- house I bought. Wow. Yeah, no. And actually the yeah. village, I'm speaking to one specifically, the village this community is located in, you could actually go buy a stick belt home in this village for less than what some of these mobile homes sell for. And so it's more of a lifestyle choice and decision yeah. to live there than it is affordable housing. Can you say where that is in New York? Yeah, it's in the Buffalo area. Okay, cool. Interesting. No, that's fantastic. Now, Kevin, we were talking before the show, you've recently started to look at some other areas, some other cash flow areas um, of real estate, namely uh, parking lots. Tell us uh, a bit about this. This is an area that's fairly new to me. I'm really curious yeah. about kind of how you decide to target that area and where you were looking for those. Sure, sure. So on one of my two podcasts, I interviewed a gentleman about four years ago who, you know, parking lot, you talk about niche. I mean, parking lots about as, yeah. as, about as niche as it gets. I interviewed a gentleman about four years ago who was a, he was an owner, but he was mostly a large broker. I think he's the largest transactional broker in the parking lot niche. And I was just intrigued. I was by the business model. I, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what the operator structure looked like, who normally you know handled you know the collections, uh, was it a third party, was it the owner of the property, what have you, you know how consolidated was the industry, and as we dug a little deeper, I realized that it's a very fragmented, pr- probably the most fragmented real estate niche that's left today. You know, more than seventy percent of parking lot owners only own one lot, so there's very few large institutional operators that are in the space. Don't get me wrong, there are, but it's incredibly fragmented. In addition to that, you know, parking lots, while there's a lot of you know, technical advances that are happening, uh, lots of you know, digital payment systems, collections, what have you, mm-hmm. a lot of these mom and pops have been just like in mobile home parks, they've been really slowly to adapt to changes in their yeah. industry. And so there's still a lot of parking lots out there that have been owned for you know, generations, you know, 40, 50 years that are in prime downtown MSAs or you know, prime tourism, tourism areas that still are utilizing old collection methods, whether it be like a lot attended or you know those old metal boxes where you have to shove your dollar in. That's what I'm thinking things. about those right here in Asheville. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's crazy. I mean, the amount of loss that comes from those type of lots that don't have a digital payment system, I don't even carry with me very rarely. And so if I can't pay with a credit card, then I'm not paying. Right. And so yeah, I, I think a couple quarters in and hope they don't check while I'm there or something. It's like, and, you know, and that's, that's what I, happens. A lot of yeah. don't, they just assume that no one's going to check and they probably don't, right. They don't have good enforcement. And so there's a lot of opportunity to buy lots again, that are in prime location. I'll give you an example. We just, and, well, let me back up a little bit. The other thing that's really attractive to us about the parking lot space. And now I'm talking to service parking lots, not necessarily parking lodges, but we like both, but surface parking lots, it will never be anything of less value than what it is today as a parking lot. Yeah. You know, it's, it's I mean, literally it, it will yeah. never be anything of less value. And so yeah. I know that if I can make sense of it financially, economically as a, as a parking lot today, that there's only upside in the future. And so we yeah. just bought a parking lot in downtown Wilmington, North Carolina. The owner we bought it for about a dozen years, he was a doctor, a local doctor, owned a bunch of other real estate. He bought it from a bank that had taken it back after 2008, you know, a developer had, and ultimately his development never came to fruition. And it went back to the bank. He bought it and uh, he basically had his son, his son operate this thing. It was a, it's a hard signalized intersection right in downtown historic district. I mean, right on restaurant row. I mean, it's about as prime as it gets. Uh, It's 27 or 28 lots. 
And again, his son kind of managed it. When we looked at the financials, he was only getting about $30,000 a year of, uh, of NOI. And he was asking six ninety five dollars for it, which those economics just don't work. You know, that just yeah. doesn't make any sense. And yeah. so he had been trying to kind of not haphazardly sell for like a year or so. He hadn't really listed or anything, but we sent a direct mailer out to that market. He was one of the few that responded. And I called on a couple other larger operators in the area that know that market. Uh, you know, they utilize digital collection systems. They have parking enforcement. They can very quickly analyze and know how much revenue it should produce in any one given year. And one of the operators, they, I think they manage about 16 other lots in that downtown area. They basically, you know, a few short days, came back with an LOI for a five-year lease at $72,000 uh, on a five-year fixed-term lease. And so you can do the quick math there. We paid six ninety-five yeah. for it, $72,000 double net with a prime operator, a good credit operator in that area. And so that's the beautiful thing about this business model is most of the operators in the business aren't owners of the real estate. This is a very, even the publicly traded companies, you know, there's some big ones out there. They don't own the real estate or most of them do not own parking lots. They, they're just an operational company. And so a lot of the owners are these, again, these mom and pops, you know, or it could be a developer, but a lot of times we're looking for the mom and pop lot that they haven't fully maximized the value. They haven't let a party operator come in and take over the operations or they, maybe they've got an operator in place, but it's like a local mom and pop operator that also doesn't utilize technology. And so this operator that we signed a lease with, they came and they put all the digital infrastructure in place. They put the collection systems in place. They put the signage in place. They did everything. That was part of the lease agreement. And we have to do nothing at this point in time other than collect $72,000 a year, year after year for five years. So like and obviously their economics... I don't know what that lot will produce, but I'm guessing that it probably will realistically do over six figures a year. I'm guess I don't know. Their margins are typically somewhere between 10 and 20 percent. And so they're comfortable with their upside potential. And this is even during a pandemic. So the crazy yeah. part about this is yeah. they just signed that lease and, and it's not a hundred back. It's only about 60% back to what it was same time last year, as far as the parking revenue, but they believe in that area enough. And they know that area enough that it will ultimately come back. And uh, they were comfortable signing term lease to that effect. Love so Awesome. Well, Kevin, as we get uh, near the end of the show, I want to touch on something else that I really love about what you do, which is your philanthropic efforts. I know you had to cancel your, your annual bike ride this year. I'm hoping to make it down next year. But if you could share with the audience what that is, why you started it, and how they can learn more if they want to join you on your ride. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that, Chris. And I started the bike ride back in 2010. It's called 72 Hours to Key West. And as I'd mentioned, you know, during those kind of dark years of following the, the crash of 2008, I really turned to the health and fitness and you know the things I did back in 2010 this is early 2010 I, I was really trying to find a big life goal like something I, you know, just out of the box for me something that pushed my limits cuz I still I just I was yearning for something Chris I just didn't know what it was and so I came up with a crazy idea I just got married and I came up with a crazy idea that I was going to ride my bike and I had been riding a bike but you know maybe 30 40 miles at a time like not any big rides and I came up with a crazy idea to ride my bike from here in Florida to Washington DC and my wife didn't fully agree with the idea, but she also <laughs> didn't say no. And ultimately I did it. I, literally within like two months, I had, had never ridden a long bike ride like my life. I went by myself, packed enough, washed my clothes every night, put on the same thing next day. And in 11 yeah. days, I rode like 1154 miles. It was life-changing. It was literally a life-changing. Forrest Gump. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, I love it. It was life-changing. But what I realized, it was life-changing only for me personally. And, and when I got done with it, you know, I was cataloging on, on Facebook all the way. And 
I only did it for my own purpose so I could reflect back. And what I realized, I created this massive following of people like literally watching every day, watching her updates. And I get to the end and I was personally fulfilled, but I realized that I wish I'd have taken advantage of the audience and done it for a greater cause. And so story short, I've been helping Rod Cleef. He's a great friend of mine. He runs the Tiny Hands right. Foundation out of uh, Sarasota. I've known Rod and, and his family for, you know, since I moved down to Florida. And so I've been helping him feed, you know, families uh, every year during the holidays. And Rod went through the same crash as I did. Rod lost basically everything. And he used to self-fund his charity. And so from feeding a couple thousand families a year to feeding literally in like 2009, 2010, literally like a couple hundred families, like mm -hmm. he had never donors. And so I put this ride together after I got back from my DC ride. I was like, I need to do something locally. And I want to do something. I don't have money yet. I'm still kind of broke myself but I have legs and I'm in the best shape of my life. So I should put a ride together here locally and let's raise money for Rod's charity, the Tiny Hands Foundation, and let's help feed more families this year. So that, that was the catalyst of it. And uh, we started that November in 2010 and we've done it every year, again, except for this year. Uh, we've raised, uh, have even kept track, but on average, we donate anything like forty dollars and $60,000 a year to feed tens of thousands of families here in the, in the Florida area. And yeah, it's exciting. Get to meet a lot of people, do great together and, and just really make a positive impact on a lot of families. I love it, Kevin. So uh, we'll put this in the show notes as well. What's the best way for people to find out about your ride, about yeah. uh, your different business endeavors and or just more about you if they want to learn more about you? Yeah. So you just go to my website, kevinbup.com and it's got links to you know company Sunrise Capital Investors. It's got links and information about our Key West bike ride. That's a good base area to land to learn everything about what I got going on. Awesome. Yeah, we'll link that kevinbuff.com with two Ps. And Kevin, question I always ask our guests before we let you go here. If you go back to your 25-year-old self, what's one piece of advice you give yourself back then? That's a great question. That's why I always ask that question to people. And I've never been asked that question yet myself. <laughs> I think just to know that you're going to run into a lot of challenges being an entrepreneur. You know, There's going to be some really tough times, incredibly tough decisions. Uh, that you have to make. And sometimes those decisions that you make might not be the right decision, right? And uh, you're going to have to, you know, to face, face the heat from it. And just know that there's very few things in life that will literally have a, uh, you know, a long-term detrimental impact on you or your business. And so know that what seems so mountainous, like that, that big challenge that you're facing, it seems so mountainous or that decision you have to make, that no matter what decision you make or what, what route you choose to go, if it was the wrong route, more than likely, probably a couple months thereafter, maybe in a few weeks or at least a year thereafter, it's going to seem like just you know, peace. It's going to be small. It was going to be nothing consequential. You're going to move on with it and you're going to move past it. So I think just really try to understand that as bad as you think things are, it's probably really not that bad. And I, you know, I went through this exercise during 2008 and I learned to, every time something would come up challenging, like uh, you know, threatened with a loss or what have you, and I'm, I'd go through this exercise with like, what's the worst case scenario that's going to come out of this one particular event? And whenever I came up with the answer, I forced myself the question multiple other times until I really drilled down to a, what is the really the worst case scenario? Am I going to lose the roof over my head? Am I sleeping underneath the bridge? Uh, am I going to lose family members? Am I going to lose friends? I mean, the things that are the most important to me, you know, the ones that love me and the ones that are around me, am I going to lose them? Then is it really all that bad? Is it really all that bad? Can we push past this? Yes, we can. So, Kevin, I love your background. I love the advice you just gave there. I appreciate everything you've shared with the audience today. And we'll make sure uh, everybody can learn about you and your ride and your other business adventures as well. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Chris, thanks for having me, man. It's been a lot of fun. And thank you for all that you do to help everyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. 